0: optimism says, huh, looks pretty good out there. Things are going to be better. But hope looks at the evidence and says, it doesn't look good at all. I'm going to make a leap of faith. That's hope.
1: Welcome to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan, and today I'm wondering about actors and what they can add to our understanding about people and populations unlike our own. My guest is Anna DeVere Smith, who I love. I interviewed her for my PBS show, Tell Me More. I loved her in Nurse Jackie and West Wing and most recently Inventing Anna. She's also the brilliant creator of a series of one-woman shows in which she becomes a range of everyday people right in front of your eyes. Join me for a conversation with Anna DeVere Smith. Hey, everybody. If you love listening to true stories from people all around the world, then we have the perfect recommendation for you, the Moth Podcast. Each episode features people from Moth events around the globe, sharing diverse and honest stories of love, resilience, change, heartbreak, chance encounters, unbelievable calamities, and everything in between. Episodes drop weekly. Find the Moth Podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews, or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. We're kicking off a new series today, featuring my interviews from season three of my PBS show, Tommy Moore. It's up right now, and you can always watch new episodes at pbsorg Kelly. Today, I'll be talking to the dramatist and actor and playwright Anna DeVere Smith. And then, thanks to the John Templeton Foundation, I'll check in with a Princeton philosophy professor named Andrew Chignell. Who studies hope and optimism, which turned out to be a big part of my conversation with Anna. Anna DeVere Smith is celebrated as an actor and a writer, but above all, she is a professional observer who turns curiosity into interviews, into one-woman shows, in which she embodies the powerful and the dismissed, sharing their words verbatim with audiences that might otherwise never hear the story of the dock worker, the jury member or the nurse. The results are sublime and subversive and might reflect our only way forward, listening. Here's my conversation with educator, writer, actor, and the woman Newsweek calls the most exciting individual in American theater,
0: Anna DeVere Smith. You said once that you borrow people for a moment. Not just me. I think that's what we as actors do, that we, we rent out our own identity. (laughs) <laughs> and then we borrow, you know, if it's like a character that's written, you know, if I'm playing in Raisin in the Sun or something, I'm for rent. And I'm also, you know, the character uh, that that Rolorian Hansberry created is, is for lease, not giving away, but just renting out and not really taking, but borrowing. You're an
1: Uber driver for identity. Is that
0: what I am? I yeah. like that. I like that. <laughs> And when you
1: were growing up, you were not dreaming of being an actress on stage. No, no. What were you dreaming of?
0: I guess when I started to think about what to be, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. And I went to see West Side Story. And um, I remember crying and crying and crying for days and days. This is the movie. And my mother walked by and said, That's it. You can't be a psychiatrist. You're too sensitive. That's so
1: interesting because a lot of what you're doing, actually, I mean, if you're a sensitive
0: person, you have put yourself in this position where you are feeling others. Well, that would be the best thing to be, wouldn't it? When I was in high school and could really start to think about it. Yeah. I don't know. I I, I think I made this up, but these people do exist. I wanted to be a linguistic ethnologist. <laughs> I wanted to learn all the languages of the world. Yeah. Because I loved my French class. It was my first class of all of school, where I just loved it so much that I didn't want the weekend to come.
1: Okay, so you get into college and you, and you start acting through ACT out in San Francisco American Conservatory Theater, which is incredible. But they're talking about method acting, which is not sort of jiving with your worldview. So can you break down a little why you didn't like it? Well,
0: you know, I didn't know anything about anything, and I went to acting school one summer just to do something with my time. I left home with $80 in an overnight bag and went to California. So I got a job. Uh, then I didn't know how to drive. I got a driver's license. And so after I succeeded in these things, I had all this spare time. And I thought I would be a stage manager. And so I called the uh, American Conservatory Theater and I said, do you, do you, have, do you need any stage managers? switchboard operator, who was the only Black woman around, said, my dear, you have to be in the union. And I said, well, how about some acting? She said, well, we have a summer program if you'd like to come. And I went. and But I thought I was just doing it for fun. I didn't know that people were in that program. It's like 200 and some people in order to get a place in their conservatory. And from that to build these careers to be famous. I was just doing something with my time. That's and insane. I, I mean, was you're one fascinated.
1: Of, you are like the actor's actor. Like, if you ask 100 actors, who do you admire most, your name is going to come up 10 out of 10 times. Like, it's incredible to think that you fell into it. I... Absolutely fell into it. Okay, so tell us what method acting is. What so is what method
0: thing? acting is um, then, and I'm, i it's look, it's changed. This was like in the '70s. So what method acting was became very famous in America because of Marlon Brando and the that set of people who studied. Uh, method, the method. And if you watch a movie like On the Waterfront, you will see a split in what the acting is like. Mm-hmm. One form of acting, like what Marlon Brando was doing, was more true-seeming. It was more like how people were. And the other was more like vaudeville, right? Mm-hmm. And it all started in Russia with a man named Konstantin Stanislavsky, who wrote about making it real, what these sort of true-seeming feelings... Unfortunately, his very famous book, An Actor Prepares, actually starts with a a student with chocolate on his face performing Othello, so there are problematic things. There's this basic idea that every character in the world lives in me, that I don't have to find the hamlet there. There's a hamlet in me, and I felt that was a real stretch, and if you add to it race... And social class and all these things that make us separate and different from one another, it seemed to me to be a problem. And so I wanted to develop a way of getting to, in fact, the very feeling of being able to represent a person's uh, disarray. And I based it more on what classical training is about. Like with Shakespeare, you don't like dig in. Actually, You have to say the words the way the words are. And so... I developed a process of talking to people and getting them in the interview to a point where they would make very interesting linguistic architectures. I say they would start singing. And so the first one of my plays that I made, not expecting to do it as a one-person show at all, I went up to people on the streets of New York and I said... I know an actor who looks like you. If you'll give me an hour of your time, I'll invite you to see yourself perform.
1: You've been doing this for 20 years and you've been celebrated for it. The very first time you walked up to a total stranger on the streets of New York Mm -hmm. and said, I'd like to talk to you for an hour. What was the response of the first person?
0: The lifeguard at the Y on 63rd Street, right. Uh Somebody who I'd never talked to before. And you know, and he said, Okay, you know, a lady in the dress store up the street. And then it got more specific, like Meredith Monk was one great composer. I mean, I do a lot of interviews, right? And in the course of, you know, to write uh, my play Twilight, which is on now, 320 interviews. So the people who end up in the show are people who has nothing to do with education, uh, who are organized in some kind of psycholinguistic way. They have extraordinarily high communicative ability through their body, through their body and through their, body yeah. and through their um, the sounds that they make and especially uh, like people who don't finish sentences um, you know that they and, and and they don't finish them because something's really going on as they recount, they're recounting to me something that happened usually, you know, and I like catastrophe because I'm a dramatist. And so that is what I mean when I say they start singing or there are these like real architectures that come out of their uh, mouths. And I believe those words have a kind of a magic to them that when I say them over and over again, I'm going to start to experience something like what they experienced. My grandfather in Baltimore said to me, us... If you say a word often enough, it becomes you. And so I've been trying to become America word for word by going around interviewing people and finding these architectures and these musics and taking them on and now um, doing it now with other actors, which really pleases me to have the chance to do that.
1: So there's this weird, interesting tension that I perceive, which is that your method is capturing natural speech but the acting that you've been doing like West Wing and the work that you do with Shonda Rhimes is the most unnatural speech and it's so precise and it's more articulate than any human being has ever been in the history of mankind. Every sentence is finished. How is that for you?
0: You just you got the first thing they tell you when you get to Shondaland is in Shondaland we say what is written and they mean it. So if I say it is instead of it's same way on the West Wing, they come over and they say, she she wants it.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Uh huh. How's that for you? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it has a lot in common with what I do, right? I'm, because I'm learning every uh and every um in addition in right. my own work. Right. So I respect the words. I respect the words, yeah. And so on West
1: Wing, when you guys are flying through those, like, oh.
0: That was more just terrifying because. You know, I I was not you know in the gang, right? They would fly me out from New York, and sometimes I would get the script very late. And you can't, even if you have a photographic memory, your tongue has to have time. I was just afraid of being embarrassed. Like sending me out on the court with you know the best basketball team in the world, and all Cat. of a sudden I like an actress nightmare. Yeah, right. Really. Like, and Anna I messed
1: I, it up again. Yeah. Sorry, we we'll have to start over because of Anna. Sorry, cut. Yes. Yeah. Right. She's still learning it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, the, the worst thing is of all is when the script supervisor comes over and he says, would you like to look at it?
1: We also have a speed round. Are you ready? Okay.
0: If I looked
1: at your playlist, your Spotify playlist, what song would be the most listened to? It'd be a
0: toss-up between Aretha Franklin's Everyday People or Aretha Franklin's Driving on the Freeway
1: best live performance
0: you've ever seen the Shirelles in Madison Square Garden in 1971 awesome if you could say four
1: words to anyone who would you
0: address and what would you say to the five actors who are playing in my play Twilight which will have be over by the time this is broadcast carry on now champions <laughs> Was it one of your earliest jobs working at a complaint department in an airline? It was. That was the year that I really developed this way of working. I mean, that I made my, you know, the whole thing If you give me an hour. And I made the show and all that stuff. And one of the people in the show was one of the people who worked there. But that gave me a little bit more courage about my whole theory because those letters were unbelievable. They were letters. And I had to type the response and give it to my boss that was really almost have you been accused of something you didn't do, right? That's how people felt when they experienced bad customer service. Huh. And I mean, one woman's from somewhere in the Arab world's mother was supposed to have been greeted, it was KLM Airlines, and they did not <laughs> greet her in <laughs> the Indulles Airport. <laughs> She ended up in a cat being (laughs) driven around Washington, D.C. for two hours. I mean, you can imagine this woman from Egypt or somewhere. And it it, just—they would make me just fall out laughing. But it just—but that was it. It's like these letters are so—they're letters so expressive, right? Right. You know, because something had happened that really, you know, set people off. So—
1: Inhabiting people's language is sort of like that kind of perspective taking. In the social science, they did this thing about couples who are about to break up. Have you heard this before? No. That like if you're really on the last your marriage is really on the last legs, they go through this exercise where we have to speak from each other's point of view using I. And sometimes it is this incredible healing moment where the cognitive becomes emotional. And I wonder, like, who modeled empathy for you? Who modeled this perspective-taking that could be the thing that knits the country back together? Like, in some ways, Republicans and Democrats are in a tough marriage. Like, I mean, we sort of have to stay married, right, for the whole thing to work?
0: We almost didn't previously. Right. So, um, you know, some people drew fouls to great... uh, Scholar of the Civil War, former Mm -hmm. president of Harvard, first woman president of Harvard, said, "You know, we're like in another Civil War now. You know, and I think that if not a real war, we're in a a intellectual and cultural war worse than the one in the in the '80s. And so we're we are quite divided.
1: Do you see perspective taking
0: as a way? Like people have to be willing to do it. Yeah, you know, I." did something up at Vassar one time where this African-American sociologist, woman, professor, and the cop, the head of the police of Vassar, at a time when black men at Vassar were, you know, saying that they were being stopped on campus and being accused. And it was, you know, a lot of heat about it. And she was one of the primary people speaking for the black kids. And I actually got these two people. To perform each other, nervous as can be, showing up in tur- black turtlenecks for this group of students. Wow. And it was so moving to have him talking like this hot, you know, intellectual academic sociologist with dreadlocks. And her talking like him, but that couldn't happen everywhere. The reason that happened at Vassar at that time, I don't know who the president of Vassar was at the time, but there was obviously something going on in that culture that it seemed to be of value for people to try. So you have to have that of value, I think. And we are not there.
1: Maybe we should send you to DC and you could do an exercise with Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and they you would think have they to- would do
0: it? <laughs> I don't know, but boy, it would be exciting.
1: It's been an eventful couple years in America. Like, I wonder if when you're living through these years, if you think, oh my God, I'm going to have to do a whole new show. I'm going to have to
0: capture this. I mean, right now, my new show is going to be about girls who, uh, you know, I have a question of what happens to a girl who grows up without a caring adult. That's my specific question right now. And I realize, you know, when we think about the individual who's most vulnerable, we rightly think about Boys of color, but girls are now. Right. I mean, they've got they got their own gangs. Uh-huh. They're handling their own packs. Uh-huh. Chicago, they're stealing cars at 14 years old, and so, and also women, because of the rise of incarceration of women. And women were girls one time. What that does to a whole community to take the women away? Yeah. Then yeah. I want to know why? What's happening? But it's like, what can we? How can we get proximate to that? How can we understand that? how much this affects all of society? Yeah, that's beautiful. Your dad
1: never really understood what you did. He never said congratulations.
0: He didn't understand it. However, I never will forget that I was nominated for two Tonys. And I I didn't know anything about this whole Tony world. And I was so not prepared for that, you know, psychologically, what that meant. You just kind of have to put on these clothes and walk down this red carpet. So uh, I didn't win, you know, I got nominated. I get home at the end of the night and uh, is when we had answering machines. And there's my father on the answering machine saying, don't take it too hard. That meant a lot.
1: You're so good at um, calling out names of people who have had an impact on your thinking. We at Tell Me More have this thing we call Plus One, which is where we deliberately shine a light on somebody who's been super influential in your thinking
0: or supportive in your work. I was profoundly, profoundly influenced by the work and presence of Ntozake Shange, who wrote for Colored Girls and other plays. To this day, 40 years later, when my Black women students get up to perform something, they're still using melodies and rhythms that were given to us first by Ntozake Shange. The way she was vulnerable to the world around her and what that play for colored girls meant and the vulnerability of those black women who first played that, those roles on Broadway and the public theater. I just don't even have words for It, it feels like it's like some profound medicine, something chemical that Ntozake Shange brought into the American theater that I can't, it's just, I mean, her genius was palpable. And uh, the other person is uh, Adrienne Kennedy, whose work as a black woman playwright had more in common, say, with Beckett. She was really coming from a place about identity and a place about form that was just... It shook my psyche and it it shook me. And I think it made me for sure uh, want to continue to work um, with fragments. And I just, I mean, right now I could just cry and do everything about their medicine.
1: What is the difference
0: between hope and optimism? So that is Cornell West. I went to talk to him when I was, redrafting my play Twilight to make a version of it that was going to go on the road. And he differentiates between hope and optimism by basically saying optimism says, huh, looks pretty good out there. Things are going to be better. You know, we can go sailing today or whatever. But hope looks at the evidence and says it doesn't look good at all. Doesn't look good at all. I'm going to make a leap of faith, go beyond the evidence to attempt to create new possibilities based on visions uh, to allow people to engage in heroic actions. Always against odds, no guarantee whatsoever, that's hope. And he says, I'm a prisoner of hope, though, right? And so I love that definition of hope. I think that's exactly what hope is. And in America, especially in the theater, people say, you know, my plays about catastrophes all the time, say, is there any hope? They don't really mean hope. They want something at the end of the show that lets them think everything's going to be all right. But that's different than hope. Hope is a lot more work. Hope is a real act of imagination. Are you hopeful? Yeah. I am. When I was watching
1: Twilight, Los Angeles 1992, which was created in the aftermath of the Rodney King beating and the terrible riots or resistance or the revolution. revolution or any word that you want to put on it, which is so significant, what word you choose there. But at any rate, you created this piece that brought together all these voices reflecting back on what that experience was for them, to be the owner of the store, to be the aunt of Rodney King, to be on the jury, et cetera. And then two nights ago, I sat in a theater and watched it redone and I left thinking, is there a cause for hope? Like, how much has changed since she first did
0: this? I think that's different than, is there hope? To look at Rodney King's beating, to look what happened, to look at George Floyd. Yeah. One way we said we have not advanced, but one way we did advance is that everybody was shocked that those cops in Los Angeles walked. Shocking to everyone who had never lived through it. was shocking to anybody who hadn't lived through it. And how could this not be considered brutality? And when it came time for the Chauvin verdict, nobody just assumed it was going to be okay. I don't know about you, but I was like glued to that, you know, I was, I was terrified. So we've learned something mm-hmm. about the system. And um, I certainly, I mean, look, I grew up in a segregated city and uh, I'm not pleased that it's just as segregated as it was. Right. And in terms of opportunity, in many ways, it's worse. So I'm not a Pollyanna, but I have to have hope because otherwise, why keep trying and I think that it is tragic if you stop trying to make it better. I'm going to make a leap of faith and and, and and try to come up with some kind of a sense of possibility so that people will engage in heroic actions. And so I really believe, I guess, I don't know this hymn, but I love it. You know, this, there's this hymn about the bloodstained banner of struggle. And I think there's real dignity in struggle there's real worthy work to do and you have to have hope to do that work
1: so you end your show twilight los angeles 1992 by sharing the words of an ex gang member who you talked to in a denny's about the need for a more complex language and i wondered if you would send us out on his lines sure
0: twilight is that time of day between day and night, limbo. I call it limbo. And sometimes when I take my ideas to my homeboys, they say, well, twilight, that's something you can't do right now. That's an idea that's before its time. So sometimes I feel as though I'm stuck in limbo, the way the sun is stuck between night and day in the twilight hours. Nighttime to me is like a lack of sun but I don't affiliate darkness with anything negative. I affiliate darkness with what came first because it was first. And relative to my complexion, I am a dark individual. And with me being stuck in limbo, I see the darkness as myself. And I see the light as the knowledge and the wisdom of the world and the understanding of others. And I know, that in order for me to be a full human being, I cannot forever dwell in darkness. I cannot forever dwell in an idea of identifying with those like me and understanding only me and mine. Such a gift. Thank you so much. Thank
1: you. It's been such a joy to be with you. It's really a dream come true.
0: Oh, come on. Thank you.
1: Coming up next, I'll be joined by philosophy professor Andrew Shignel for a deep dive on hope and optimism. We'll be right back. When you're hiring for your small business, you want quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than, wait for it, a billion professionals, which makes it the best place on earth to hire the right people. It gives you access to applicants you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and totally intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have this many qualified candidates right at your fingertips. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn Jobs just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash kelly. .com/kelly to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Kelly Corrigan Wonders. I'm Kelly Corrigan. Thanks to PBS and the folks at the John Templeton Foundation, I got a chance to talk to a Princeton professor named Andrew Schagnel. Andrew teaches philosophy and religion and looks at the moral psychology of hope and despair. So he was kind of the perfect person to follow up with and dig in on this at a different level. I'm super grateful to Andrew for coming and meeting me and talking to me about pessimism and optimism, God and atheism and agnosticism, and what the arts can do in terms of resetting our insides such that we might be a little softer and a little more empathetic. Hey, Andrew, thanks a lot for coming to talk to us about hope and optimism. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. Happy to be here.
1: So we both really enjoyed getting to know Anna DeVere Smith through her episode. She makes this sort of interesting distinction between hope and optimism. Do you make the same distinction?
2: I think most psychologists and philosophers now think there's an important difference between the two. So in Anna's interview... She invokes Cornel West as having made this distinction. He says, well, despair is where you start. Where you end up is hope, not optimism. Optimism looks like, I've assessed the evidence. I think we're doing pretty good. We're going to get there. Expectation, confidence. He doesn't think we have much of that, at least with respect to the really wicked problems that we're facing. And so hope is all we have. And he thinks he's a prisoner of hope. And then said, her plays and other work are catastrophic. She's not giving the audience a lullaby at the end. There's no real optimism. But she wants to somehow imprison them in a sense of hope.
1: I think it's very interesting to think about the relationship between optimism and hope and pessimism and hope.
2: The history of optimism as a concept is located in this debate between the pessimists and the optimists. Optimism is one of the few very familiar words that was coined by a philosopher in the 17th century, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, the mathematician, philosopher, sure. invented calculus and so forth. Yeah, He also... Had a proof for God's existence. A mathematical proof. More or less, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. reason can show you that God must exist. And if God must exist, then this must be the best world of all the other possible worlds. So it's the best of all possible worlds. Metaphysical optimism is the, just the doctrine that this is the best way things could have been. And if God had chosen anything else, it would have been worse, and God wouldn't choose that. So that's optimism. But Optimism then kind of takes a turn for the worse in the mid-18th century when there's this gigantic earthquake in Lisbon, 1755. Not only was there this gigantic earthquake, but it happened on November 1st, which is All Saints Day, and it happened at 10 a.m., which is when everybody was in church, and the churches fell on their heads and killed a lot of people, and the people who didn't get killed ran down to the port to try to escape the fires. And there was a tsunami that came 45 minutes later and inundated them. So in one day, like 80% of the buildings, a third of the people die. And Candide is written by Voltaire as a sort of mockery of optimism. So Candide is a book about optimism. There's a professor character, Professor Pangloss. It's clearly supposed to be Leibniz. And he's Looking at all the evils that have been visited on the world and even tours Lisbon and sees these horrendous things and keeps saying, But this is the best of all possible worlds. Mm-hmm. We must be optimists.
1: Panglossian.
2: Panglossian, yeah. Voltaire himself, though, says, you know, Everything is fine today. That is an illusion, the illusion of the optimist. That everything will work out in the end. That is our hope. Mm-hmm. So, are
1: you a pessimist who's also hopeful?
2: Yeah, hopeful pessimist is what I would call myself. And I think that's what Anna DeVere Smith was endorsing.
1: Mm-hmm. I think
2: that's what Cornell West is endorsing. Voltaire, too, a kind of hopeful pessimist.
1: Which is, to look at it, any, any rational assessment of the scene on the ground in America right. circa 2022 is... Yeah. And yet, maybe.
2: Exactly, yeah. So not despairing pessimism, but hopeful pessimism. Trying to cling to that sense of possibility and allow that to motivate you. Are you hopeful? The fact that I'm working on it makes me think that it's (laughs) something that I need to also personally work on. So Uh I'm intrigued by it because I can collapse into despair, especially in the face of enormous collective action problems. So I like to think about hope as this thing that you can combine with pessimism about some of these trajectories and yet still feel like that's motivating you to do what you can, try to make a difference.
1: So... With hope, it's more of a leap. Like, there's not an assessment there that leads you to a conclusion. It's more generous, would you say?
2: That's a really interesting part of what Anna DeVere Smith said. Most philosophers would think that the assessment with respect to hope is just, is the thing possible? If it's not possible, then you might wish for it. And at some point, you ask her, are there grounds for hope? And she pauses and is like, that's different. And what she says suggests that she thinks even the sense that the thing is possible sometimes only comes in once you start acting. And she talks about leaping in a kind of heroic action.
1: In which case, it's a real benefit to be sort of a low-rumination, tend-toward-action person, because as you get a little closer to it, it might come into focus such that you could start to have really significant grounds to think you could get there.
2: Jane Goodall has this new book called The Book of Hope.
1: I have it, on my bedside yeah. table. So
2: her idea is that these are formidable problems, despair is a real threat, demoralization, especially for younger generations. And she says something like, telling stories about people confronting the impossible and doing it anyway is what generates hope in others. There's an imaginative ability to sort of work yourself into somebody else's story or situation that also allows you then to see new possibilities for moving forward and so awakens hope.
1: Surely it's to the good for us to be internalizing other people's stories. The more empathetic you are, the more potentially productive or world positive you can be.
2: Yeah, I think stories do that for us, both in theater and in reading and Mm -hmm. television, of course. That was an important part of this five-year grant project that we were doing to not just sponsor the research, but we wanted there to be a public-facing component in the arts in particular, in the mode of storytelling. We actually held this Hope Festival in LA. Three days of speakers and people presenting results of research, but in a publicly accessible way. And we produced the play, we showed the short films. Cornell West was our keynote speaker.
1: Did you feel like you were generating hope?
2: Yeah, I mean, especially when there's a line out the door to see Cornel West and Tali Shero, who's this scholar of optimism. People coming in from all over the neighborhood to check it out.
1: It's interesting to think about what the public will pay for. Hmm. You know, when you think about art and plays that are hopeful, television shows that are hopeful, yeah. you know, my husband and I seem to be just mad for shows like Succession and oh, yeah. Sopranos and Six Feet Under, yeah. which are grim. Totally grim. The Wire, Yeah. you know, so what is that in us that wants to sign up for King
2: Lear? I mean, there might be a cathartic aspect to it mm-hmm. where we like to see the very worst things that can happen, but not in reality, mm-hmm. but rather depicted in the you know, nastiest characters you can come up with. Mm-hmm. Succession would, would qualify. <laughs> and one of the other things I work on is evil. And so I think there's a kind of fascination with extreme forms of wickedness or violence. It has some parallels to the sublime where it's just beyond what your, your ordinary concepts and categories can put together. And so you're mesmerized by it, though also in some sense revolted and terrified.
1: That's interesting. So you study evil and hope.
2: Yeah, those are two things I study.
1: You're a funky dude.
2: Well, it's good to have them balancing each other off, I think.
1: Yeah. Are those the only two things you study, or are there even more?
2: No, I work on knowledge and also animal ethics, faith.
1: Are you an atheist?
2: Nope. I'm a hoper. (laughs) I mean, I'm an agnostic hoper, so maybe not a believer, but a hoper.
0: One of the things I like to
2: work on is the question whether hoping that some of these religious things might be true can still constitute an authentic religious stance in the world.
1: One of the people that we talked to this season was Kate Bowler, and she was talking about toxic positivity. Right. Do you have thoughts on that?
2: Only insofar as I would think that sometimes all the talk of optimism in the culture pop psychology, pop business, even kind of pop medicine, like you should be optimistic that you can believe that you will in fact get better and that will lead you to getting better. You can manifest the thing that you really want and that will bring it about. I think some of that can be toxic and misleading for people and ultimately lead to great disappointments. There's kind of a debate in nursing studies between the optimism people who want to say something like that and the hope-oriented people who are like, no, we got to tell the patients the real truth. You have a 1% chance of surviving this. But then encourage them to, the phrase that is is sometimes used is, be the 1%. Focus on that 1%, even though it's grimly minimal, and become a kind of hopeful person with respect to that very small possibility. So that's not self-deceptive, and it's not kind of false or toxic optimism. It's real. And it might also allow people to settle their affairs and take care of their business. But it still encourages focusing on that slim possibility and hope.
1: Yeah. mean you now my friend Liz died, and she was given a 5% chance mm-hmm. to live for five years with ovarian cancer. And we were saying for some of those years, you know, you could be that 5%. Right. Like Nobody could is more likely to be that 5%. You're insanely healthy. You're super smart. Your husband's super smart. You have resources. You can get to any trial. You have a network. Like, the things that you have might make you hyper-qualified to be in that 5%. And towards the end of her life, she said, I'm tired of trying to be in the 5%. Hmm. I I feel like failure.
2: Hmm. I feel like
1: everybody around me was sort of saying, like, do it, do it. And it's like, do it.
2: Do? What what do you want me to do? Yeah. So... The data suggests that on the whole, focusing in that way will help people with outcomes, but certainly not for everybody. And it is really hard, I imagine.
1: Is it clear in your work how hope relates to depression?
2: If depression is partly constituted by despair, then yeah, I think that's a big topic. If depression is a result of certain kinds of oppression, sort of social systemic structures that keep people down literally that also I think is a topic that is addressed in the hope literature clinical depression is not something that we were sponsoring research on so you know the kind of things for which you'd be diagnosed and given medication but it's hard to imagine that that's not going to be connected Mm -hmm. Um, depression does seem to involve the inability to not just be optimistic but to view and create the kind of possibilities that hopeful people do.
1: And does your research identify how hope gets lost?
2: There is this pendulum swing between hope and despair that is partly just a function of the long odds commanding your attention and taking your attention away from the outcome as possible. And so there's a sense in which despair is the result of an inability to mindfully maintain a kind of hopeful focus.
1: In the course of Tell Me More, we've talked to people that are circulating true stories hmm. of hope that somehow define a pathway that's like, first you do this and then you do this and like the sort of 12-step version of anything, which is to say there is a way from where you are right now to where you want to be.
2: Interesting, yeah. So there is a theory in psychology called the Hope Scales Theory. It was Mm -hmm. generated by a guy named Rick Snyder and his students. And they seem to think that a high hope person will be somebody who both sees pathways to an outcome that you want and thinks of themselves as agents who can help us get there. So in order to produce high hope individuals, Snyder says, you have to encourage pathways thinking and agency thinking. Mm I tend to think that that's a little too narrow. I mean, it seems like we do hope for things regarding which we can't see any pathways, regarding which there's literally nothing we can do. But surely we still hope. I mean, even with respect to something as silly as a team winning, there's nothing I can do, but I certainly hope. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, a lot of people get really serious about that hope. Or think about the afterlife or, you know, kind of religious hopes. Those might be things where the pathways... Are not up to us, but there's still things we can hope for. Is there such things as too much hope, or, or false hope, or so? Yeah, false hope, irrational hope, the you know not taking precautions kind of hope. If hope really does involve attending, you know, focusing on certain things, if it takes away your attention from other really important things while you're obsessively hoping for this one thing, that mm-hmm. might be bad. But there's also a kind of movement of anti-hope people. In the climate crisis discussion, so Greta Thunberg will say, Mm -hmm. I don't want your hope, I want you to act. Mm -hmm. Or the Extinction Rebellion people are like, look, hope is this panacea, it leads to passivity. You can wait for society or the rulers or the leaders or God to bring about some good thing. Or you can act in despair, desperation, extreme despair, and that that's more effective. So I think we have to be concerned about a context in which hope can be an opiate rather than a motivator.
1: What are the characteristics of opiate hope?
2: Some people would think that religious hope operates in that way. On the one hand, religion is the source of great community and sort of communal struggle and reform, and of course, hope, even in a kind of transcendent context, so hope that God or providence will bend the arc of history towards justice in the end. But the critics will suggest that that's a little too pie in the sky and it's a way of keeping the oppressed sort of doing their thing and not working or rebelling in the ways that would actually bring about change. So you kind of want to know who is it that's talking about hope? Is it the privileged people and the leaders telling you, you know, yeah, there's room for hope here. Just keep doing your thing and, you know, we'll take care of it. Or is it coming from the oppressed group themselves?
1: Right. And maybe the thing that would give the oppressed group hope is some different legislation, let's say.
2: Or different leaders. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Yeah. When you watch media coverage of the world today, do you have a, a lens on it that's saying, oh, don't promote that version of the story? or like, Are you seeing how the hope lens or the optimism lens is getting layered onto stories to our benefit or to our detriment?
2: I think a lot of the news has a fairly despairing element to it. I mean, the negative story is what's interesting and shocking and needs to be told. There are various news outlets. I think The Guardian has something called the up story or, you know, there's a kind of effort to put out the good news once in a while. Just at one
1: tiny little corner. Yeah, (laughs) i just going to tell you one happy thing.
2: Yeah. And those do, I think, have a certain kind of effect. They don't portray them as panaceas or kind of reason for massive optimism globally. But they do give you a sense amidst all the unrelenting bad news that some good things are happening, that, you know, the two-party system can occasionally cooperate with one another. Mm -hmm. That, you know, the Greta Thunbergs of the world do, in fact, make a difference.
1: One of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen just crossed my transom, if you will. And it was a bunch of doctors in China, and a a kid had died. Hmm. And before they harvested all this kid's organs, they, it was just us, they just stood around him in a circle and bowed down. Wow. I mean, that's kind of hopeful, right?
2: Yeah. One of the policemen who was shot in Harlem last month, um, they harvested five organs and saved five lives. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Hopeful story. In amidst a tragic story.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned mindfulness. Do you guys think about that a lot? Do you make recommendations about it? How do you define it?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a buzzword in the culture at the moment. For sure. It's important. comes out of the Buddhist tradition, often associated with meditation practice. So don't stress out about what's coming through the theater of the mind. Just kind of let it pass and mindfully attend to it. Better yet, have nothing going through the theater of the mind and just focus on your breath you know, these kinds of meditative practices. I think that Samuel Taylor Coleridge is right to say that hope without an object cannot live. So he says, work without hope is like nectar through a sieve. Hope without an object cannot live. So I think the kind of attention or focus involved in hope can't just be on your breath or on nothing. It's mindful in the sense that it's trying to resist The swing over to, oh my God, this is impossible. We're never gonna be able to do it. All those kinds of considerations that defeat the hope. It's this mindful learning to attend to possibilities and pathways to outcomes. Hmm.
1: That's really interesting. Thanks a lot for saying yes to us. Thanks a lot for helping us think smarter and in a more grounded way about hope and optimism.
2: Thanks for having me, it's great.
1: Here are my takeaways from my conversations with Anna Javere Smith and Andrew Chignell. Number one, vulnerability is profound medicine, and public vulnerability is profound societal medicine. Number two, from Anna via Cornell West, a prisoner of hope, optimism says, looks pretty good out there. Hope says, doesn't look good at all, but yet I maintain my faith. Number three, Hope is a lot more work than optimism. It's an act of real imagination. Number four, there is dignity in our struggle. Number five, in order to be a full human being, I cannot forever seek to understand only me and mine. Number six, some days the best we can call ourselves is a hopeful pessimist. Number seven, telling stories about people confronting the impossible and doing it anyway is what generates hope. And number eight, as Samuel Taylor Coleridge said, work without hope is like nectar through a sieve. I want to thank PBS who allows me to do this great work of surfacing some of our best thinkers and our most impassioned advocates for a better America. I also want to thank them for sharing these inspiring stories via stations across the country and online anytime at pbs.org/slash Kelly. I want to thank the John Templeton Foundation for supporting the PBS show and therefore this podcast. I want to thank Anna DeVere Smith, the one and only, and Andrew Chagnell of Princeton University. I also want to thank the team at Kelly Corrigan Wonders, that's Dean Kateri, our technical producer, Tammy Stedman, our producer and Garrett Peters who edited and mixed the PBS interviews. We have three interns we love, CC Clark who is finally back from Rome, Maddie Malin who is here in New York with me, and Margaret Faust who is down at Elon. And of course, I want to thank you all for being with us and for sharing episodes with your friends and letting them be fodder for better conversation and deeper understanding. We'll be back on Friday for another For the Good of the Order and on Sunday with a new episode of Thanks for Being Here. Hey, I have a quick favor to ask. We are conducting a survey to get to know you, our audience, better. It won't take long and it's easy to find. Visit survey.prx.org slash kelly. That's survey.prx.org slash kelly. Thank you.